Wednesday was both St. Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday. This merging on the face of it of two pretty different holidays, an originally Bacchus, I think, celebration of human love, and an austere reminder that we are all going to die. <laughs> ashes to ashes, dust to dust. <laughs> Inspired many. Not especially funny, I didn't think until this morning. <laughs> Internet jokes and memes. Um, my favorite was possibly roses are red, violets are blue. When you are dead, God still will love you. <laughs> Silly, but a little poignant too, I think. In any event, I decided that thinking about the relationship between these two days and in the larger sense, the relationship between our love for God and our love for other human beings might be a really good way to begin our Lenten series. Our lives are shaped by what we love. Valentine, like many Catholic saints, has a disputed biography. My favorite way of telling Valentine's story goes like this. Valentine is a Catholic priest during the reign of Emperor Claudius. Claudius needs more soldiers for his many wars of imperial expansion. To increase the number of soldiers, Claudius makes a rule, forbidding men of certain classes to marry. Because married men couldn't be conscripted and often were less likely to volunteer. Priest Valentine disobeyed the emperor's edict and secretly married dozens of would-be draftees to their sweethearts. The emperor finds out, and in his rage, has Valentine beheaded. I am inspired by this story, with its echoes of war resistance, and although it is debatable whether there was a particular priest named Valentine, there were undoubtedly priests who disobeyed Caesars in this way and suffered consequences. A whole movement of revolutionary love. And this is worth celebrating, I think. We all know that empires at their worst make rules against marriage. No Jews to Gentiles, no blacks to whites. And in our own time, there's an urge to, there's a, there's a concerted effort to roll back constitutional protections for same-sex couples. Trying to control love is one of the ways an empire claims total allegiance. I like this Valentine. Let's call him the patron saint of revolutionary love. Now laying aside whether this is a true story, there is some irony here. The stories of saints were often used to promote a life of religious devotion that insisted that the best way to fully love God was to not marry, to be drafted instead into the army of God and be willing to die for God as a martyr. This is in fact the alternative way that the story of St. Valentine is told. The second version, let's call it St. Valentine, defender of the faith, is a story about a man who had unwavering faith and allegiance to God, and he's brutally killed because he refuses to reject his faith. The association with love and romance comes from a note that Valentine writes to a young girl, a young convert, 
urging her not to fall away from the faith, signed on a little parchment shaped like a heart, your Valentine. Now, I like the first version of the story better. Yes, because I'm a pacifist, but also I think essentially because it is a story about loving your neighbor as yourself. Valentine is willing to risk his own life to possibly save the life of another, or at least um, to offer the opportunities of experiencing the joys of loving commitment and possibly children. The second story, like many martyr stories, is focused on allegiance to God, loving God with all your heart, and potentially choosing divine love over human love. My preference for a martyr who dies because of love of neighbor, the saint of revolutionary love, over the martyr who dies because he loves God is certainly a modern preference. It wouldn't make any sense to our Anabaptist forebearers who wrote the martyrs near. And I was first made aware of this preference while reading Shusako Endo's book, Silence. His novel, Silence, tells the story of the Japanese imperial government's persecution of Christians in the 17th century. The Japanese officials know that the bravery of early Christian martyrs inspired many people in the Roman Empire to convert to Christianity. They do not want Christianity to spread in Japan. For this reason, they decide that martyring priests is out. Instead, they create a horrible dilemma for these priests, especially their leader, Padre Sebastian Rodriguez. They are given the option to either recant their faith or to witness the excruciating torture and death of their Japanese converts. In the book, Rodriguez chooses apostasy. He rejects his faith and is made to publicly spit on an icon of Jesus. This choice is portrayed by the novelist as simultaneously an act of renouncing Christ as well as an act of deep fidelity to Jesus. A man who not only gave up his life for others, but also gave up his reputation. Now, I think part of the exquisite cruelty of the Japanese officials' test was that it did put in direct conflict two crucial commands in Christianity. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In our scripture passage today, Jesus insists that these two commands are interconnected. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And uncharacteristically, he answers the question directly instead of responding perhaps with another question or a parable. Although he does give two answers instead of just one, <laughs> noting, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and mind and soul, but there's a second commandment that he indicates should be mentioned in the same breath. In his words, it is so much like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. The epistle writer states things more clearly. You can't claim to love God who you haven't seen and not love your neighbor who you have seen. I've been thinking about the interconnection of these commandments a lot lately. 
What do you lose when you choose one over the other? Our conservative brothers and sisters claim that we, I'm going to say this about us, woke progressive Christians have chosen love of neighbor over love of God. That we are more interested in social justice than we are in proper worship and theology. Alternatively, I think liberal Christians are aghast at the lack of care conservatives show to their neighbors. Now, I made my decision on this question a while ago when I was reading Silence. If forced into Rodriguez's dilemma, I would choose apostasy and love of neighbor. But scanning contemporary evangelicalism, I think, drives the point home more fully for me. It seems to me that a total fidelity to God and a love of God alone with no embodied connection to love of neighbor skews rather quickly into idolatry. A love of God's power, unmoored for love of neighbor, becomes simply a love of power. A love of God's wisdom, unmoored from love of neighbor, becomes simply a love of being right. And a love of God's promised presence, unmoored from love of neighbor, results in the creation, I think, of a tribalistic God, a God who is with us exclusively, perhaps even against our neighbor. This seems like an obvious malformation of Christianity. And I think we all agree that we love God best when we love our neighbor as ourselves. However, if these commands are interconnected, it is also true that loving God helps us in some critical way to love our neighbor. And if this is so, how and in what ways? First, let me speak simply and for myself. I need God's help in loving my neighbors. There's no version of Jody that loves her neighbor without God. Prayer is the place that I go to in order to remind myself that I am not the most important person in the world, obvious as it is, where I remember that there is a world of people that God loves just as much as God loves me. And prayer is where I have found power greater than the power I have just on my own to do this loving. Love is always a risk. And I believe that it's easier to take this risk when we know that we are ultimately held by a God whose love is constant and never changing. Second, I believe God has given us explicit permission to love God by loving people. In Matthew 25, Jesus makes the connection between love of God and love of neighbor total. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Here Jesus seems to be pressing beyond a simple simile. Loving God is like loving your neighbor. Or even a simple metaphor such as your neighbor is a symbol of Jesus or God. Instead, Jesus seems to be saying something a bit closer to what our Catholic brothers and sisters say when they assert Jesus is truly present in the bread and wine of communion. 
Jesus is saying, when you feed your poor neighbor, that was me, full stop, no analogy necessary. There is no distance between love of God and love of our neighbor, I think because of the incarnation. God in the form of Jesus becomes our neighbor. But I do think this presents us with some troubling challenges. If Jesus is really, truly, and fully present in our neighbor, especially our poor neighbors, and especially people that we class as enemies, then the command to love our enemies isn't in any way optional. There is no escape path. There is no escape path where we just love God and we love our friends. Which for me gets to the third and maybe the most difficult point to express. I think that our pacifism and nonviolence is ultimately grounded in the love of God, not necessarily our love for each other. That we choose to say no to violence and hatred and yes to peace and love, this is because of things we believe about God and the way God governs the world and about the power of revolutionary love. It is because our lives have been shaped by a certain kind of love and we have been captivated by a story, a story that insists in the words of author Marilyn Robinson that we are to love our enemies not to satisfy some standard of righteousness, but because God loves them. I don't think pacifism makes total sense separate from our religious commitments. It asks us to do something nearly impossible, not simply to live as people whose lives are shaped by love of neighbor, but to live as people whose lives are shaped by love of enemy. Moreover, to live like we believe that people who do horrific, violent things are just as deserving of love as those who we claim are innocent or who are innocent or vulnerable. I think this is shocking. I think it's a shocking thing that we believe. And probably this is why most Christians are not pacifists. Most Christians throughout time have been committed to the just war. And I think just war states pretty clearly that it's fine and good for you as an individual person to refuse to defend yourself because you believe you shouldn't kill people. But you have an obligation to protect the innocent when they are threatened by an evil or violent person. Innocent people shouldn't suffer from your convictions. It's one thing to be a martyr yourself and another thing altogether to stand by and watch other people suffer. Now to be fair, the 20th century gives us a lot of examples of how you can stop harm without killing people. And I think nonviolent strategies are often better tools for protecting people against violence. And it is also clear that just war, if it ever was possible, isn't possible today, and that plenty of innocents are going to be so-called collateral damage in the pursuit of a justified war. One of my theology professors was apt to say, whether you believe in just war or pacifism, Either way, innocent people will suffer from your convictions. But this is to say, 
A commitment to nonviolent love, I think, is ultimately grounded not totally on pragmatism, but in our faith. And here I take as an example the witness of King, Martin Luther King. Few people did more to argue for the effectiveness of nonviolence in the 20th century than he did. Perhaps the real patron saint of revolutionary love. King noted that one of the biggest problems with Christianity is that we have gotten love all wrong. He notes that Christianity tends to espouse a vision of love that is sentimental and anemic. And that has led Christians who not, those who are not Christians who are marginally interested in justice to decide that love is ineffective, toothless and wishy-washy. This kind of love has no faith in a realistic pursuit of justice. Countering this, King says, no, love is not sentimental and anemic. It is a power, a creative and constructive and world-altering force. He believed it was superior to other forms of power because ultimately other forms of power simply deny the ineffable holiness of even our enemies. But King also lived long enough to see the incredibly complicated ways that racism and capitalism and imperialism shaped American culture, a culture that was deeply resistant to appeals to nonviolence and love. But here, even, even when his nonviolent campaigns stalled near the end or were ineffective, this didn't change his underlying belief that love is the most powerful force in the world. He held on to this conviction even when the political tides changed. Yes, I think because he had an abstract faith that the universe bends towards justice, and also because he thought it was impossible to love God without loving your neighbor, but also because he had a faith that was formed by the story that we prepare to hear again this Lent a story that assumes, that assures us that beyond this world, that beheaded Valentine, an assassinated king, and crucifies Jesus, that beyond this world where the strong claim that death is the final and totalizing power, that we remind ourselves once again that love is indeed stronger than death. 